There are many wonderful people adding to the positive outlook of a backcountry and hunting lifestyle. Our goal is to join them in promoting that outlook. Welcome to the Backcountry Dreaming Podcast, where we share stories, tips, and tactics of our outdoor pursuits. Welcome back, everybody, to the Backcountry Dreaming Podcast. This is Joe, and I've got Chad here today, and... This is Jamie Carlson we have with us today. Um, those of you who don't know, Jamie Carlson does uh, recipes and content with Modern Carnivore, which is a local organization here in Minnesota, Outdoor Life, as well as Outdoor News. Um, kind of more on the cooking side of anything, but a little bit of foraging and all kinds of fun jazz like that. So, Jamie, why don't you kind of put us on the map on kind of where you got your start and where you got started getting involved with the outdoors. How did your first contact with the outdoors? It's kind of two stories. Uh, the first story. I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the first story is uh, growing up the way I did. Um, my mom and dad uh, met each other, uh, summer lovers, uh, because my grandparents had cabins next door to each other on Leech Lake. Oh, nice. No yeah. kidding. That's awesome. Uh, huh? So my entire life was spent there. Wow. Uh, mom and dad met there. Uh, we went there every summer. Uh, when I got old enough, uh, they would just drive me up there, leave me there and come back, get me a week before school was time to go back. Oh my gosh. So my, That's a dream. my well, the dream, <laughs> my life has been very interesting. Uh, <laughs> we started off in Illinois. We moved up here. Um, I went to second grade in Cass Lake at the elementary school there, yep. had to ride a bus to school every morning. Uh, the bus driver was a guy named Leo. Uh, Leo had an affinity for, uh, white suckers. Uh. So I was telling him how they would come into the shore and spawn. And he was telling me, uh, can you get me some of those? So in second grade, I would go down to the lake shore with a dip net dip up eight, 10 of these things, bring them up, cut the heads off, cut them, uh, wrap them in newspaper and bring them to Leo. Uh, I would bring them up to Leo, give them to him on the bus. He'd drop me off at school on the way home. He'd give me a box and he'd say, give this to your grandmother. Uh, I did that uh, a number of times. Uh, only later in life did I find out that Leo was also a cattle farmer. Uh, and every time I brought him white suckers, he sent uh, a box of beef to my grandmother. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so uh, in second grade, I learned uh, that you know there was value to all of this. It was uh, a barter system. <laughs> I, I did that over and over again with Leo, and uh, then we ended up moving down to Rochester. And my summers were usually spent at Leech Lake. Most of our weekends were spent at Leech Lake. Um, I'd get dropped off after school was out. My summer job was to cut about 10 to 12 cords of wood. So I'd cut and stack wood for my grandparents. Uh, and I'd get up in the morning, do that for a few hours, and then I'd get in the boat and go fishing. Oh. Uh, it, it may be overly romantic, uh, but the fondest memories I have of childhood are set, sitting on the end of my grandparents' dock. Uh, my grandmother and I would go down there after dinner throw a couple lines out, turn the twins game on, and we'd listen to the twins radio and watch sunset and catch walleyes off the dock. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> and I and I think not to cut cut into your story, but I think that's kind of a lot of people in Minnesota that's kind of like their childhood. Because to me, I grew up with, at a cabin we went to as well, and it was kind yeah. of the same thing. Our summers were spent up there. I think every weekend was pretty much spent at the cabin, and then there was always a week or two out of the summer that we'd spend the whole week up there. And yeah, my fondest memories are kind of the same thing, but more more or less just sitting in a boat, watching yeah. the sunset, kitchen, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, I mean, for me, it started young, uh, doing that sort of stuff. Um, all along the road down to my grandparents' cabin, there were black cap raspberries and gooseberries and everything else. So we would go and we'd pick those. Grandma would make jam. 
So did she kind of get you started on the foraging stuff then when you were a kid a little bit? You know, she'd say, go pick raspberries. We'd go pick raspberries. Uh, It wasn't a thing. Yeah, I didn't learn the word foraging until I was probably 25 years old. Yeah. But grandma would say, go pick raspberries. We'd go pick raspberries. We'd pick gooseberries. Uh, We'd get anything we could and bring them down to her. And she'd make jam and then we'd have pancakes. And uh, I had two crazy old aunties uh, that used to come up there, (laughs) Ruth and Marge. uh, And during the summer when I would stay up there, they always had a two-week period where they would come up. And Ruthie and Marge, all they wanted was shore lunch. They didn't uh, care what it was. They just wanted fresh fish for lunch every day. Yep. So my job then in the morning was to go down to the dock and catch fish, uh, bring it up, and they would fry up rock bass and perch and nice. uh, the occasional northern pike yeah. and some sunnies and uh, i'm glad you started with rock bass oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's my favorite fish i love them uh but the old popeye uh, the the occasional you know bullhead even they didn't care. oh yeah no kidding. yeah they were they were you know they were old ladies they didn't care uh whatever type of fish came they were going to eat so I would go down and do it, and then, you know, at the end of the week, they'd give me five bucks, and thanks for catching all the fish. And you know, You're yeah. a market fisherman. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <very young age. laughs> uh, so, I mean, there was a lot of that sort of stuff that went on. And uh, when I got old enough to finally hunt, uh, right on Leech Lake is where I was eight, nine years old and the first time in a duck boat and went out and duck hunting with my grandfather and my uncle and my dad and uh, lots of entertaining stories, <laughs> uh, a couple of ruptured eardrums. Uh, <laughs> my grandfather had a horrible habit of swinging too far left. <laughs> Just, <laughs> Your father was, knew that and he put you on the oh, left. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he rang the ears a couple of times. Um, when I got old enough, uh, to go out by myself. I went by myself. Uh, I walked the woods, uh, up in the Chippewa National Forest for grouse. It's a gorgeous area. Uh, yeah, I, I just, I grew up there. Every part of it was what I did. Uh, we had cabin just one to the right, uh, of my grandparents were the Obergs. Uh, they're beet farmers up by Grand Forks, uh, okay. a couple thousand acres of land up there. So they invite us up every year to go deer hunting and we'd go deer hunt there. We'd duck hunt leech. We'd go out and shoot squirrels, uh, do all that. My grandfather had, uh, big Martin houses and loved oh, okay. his birds. So he hated the squirrels. Uh, on more than one occasion, was he, he would, a tree rat guy? <laughs> he tree would, rats. He would he would hand me a twenty two and a box of shells, and he'd tell me to go shoot all the squirrels. Uh, Do you get I five was, bucks for that too? No, no, I got my I got my butt pedal for that. Uh, I was carry uh, on tennis, uh, and Grandpa handed me a box of shells and a twenty two, and he said, uh, "James, go shoot them squirrels." So I went out and. I'd walk around the area and go between both grandparents' place and go over to the Obergs and go across the road. And I was shooting all these squirrels and chipmunks and red squirrels. And I'd bring them all back down to the house. And on one particular occasion, I, I don't know why it struck me as something to do, but I took them all and I hung them on my grandmother's clothesline. <laughs> Uh, and she came home, uh, and there must have been 30 squirrels hung up on the clothesline. Squirrels and chipmunks and red squirrels all hung up there with her clothespins, the old wooden ones, and she was just not happy. You were aging. <laughs> she, was, uh, she was not happy at all. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's a great area, I think, for somebody to cut their teeth because there's just, like you said, you get the walk through the woods to duck yeah. hunting. I've got friends that still duck hunt leech. I grouse hunt and rabbit hunt and a little bit of deer hunting up in that area as yeah. well. And then, yeah, the fishing up there is phenomenal too. That's that's, that's really cool. Yeah, I've always enjoyed fishing there. It's a great lake to fish. Uh, I haven't duck hunted there in years. Um, I was up there last year uh, grouse hunting and squirrel hunting. Uh, shot a squirrel, uh, dropped, hit the ground, and right where it hit the ground, the grouse stood up and started running. So <laughs> it was just one of those situations that you never see it. It's never going to happen again, but it was yeah. fun. I think that's a great way to grow up, and I think that it, it sounds – to me, like your grandmother had a lot of influence on you as far as going My grandmother for... had, uh, there were two roles. 
growing up. There was my grandfather mm -hmm. who felt as though uh, we were supposed to hunt. Mm -hmm. uh, the duck opener, the deer opener, these are big deals. We're supposed to be there. Yep. Fish opener, that's what you do. Yep. Uh, midnight, Friday night, you're sitting on the end of the dock, and at midnight exactly, the first line goes in. You fish all night, and that's what you do all week. Yeah. That type of situation. So where grandpa wanted that to happen, uh, my grandmother taught me how to clean fish. Uh, she taught me how to pluck ducks, dip them in wax. Uh, she taught me how to skin squirrels. Uh, all the things that you need to know afterwards, yep. grandma taught me. Uh, grandpa wouldn't have known how to do any of it. So they both played an important role. Oh, yeah. They each had their part. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that was the majority of my life. And then, you know, when I was 18, I left and joined the Navy and was gone for a number of years. And then when yeah. I came home, uh, is kind of when the second phase of the story happens. And uh, that, that's more moving towards just the, taking it to the next level. Just the independence of it all. Yeah. Uh, you know, I only ever hunted with dad and only ever hunted oh, with okay. my grandpa and, yep. uh, my uncle. Uh, and then when I got out of the Navy, uh, I met a guy, uh, Eric Passy, who is, uh, probably as big of an influence on me. Uh, I'd moved down to Wabasha and Eric was a duck hunter and he had asked me if I wanted to there when you moved. <laughs> uh, he had asked me if I wanted to go duck hunting with him. Yeah. Uh, and I went and I lived a couple miles away from Eric and the river was right there. So we started duck hunting and we both worked the night shift at the hospital. So we had days to go do stuff. Yep. We were both younger. Uh, I was single. He was newly married, but still no kids uh, and lots of free time. Yep. Uh, so there were a number of years there where, you know, Eric and I were hunting 45 out of 60 days uh, yep. of a duck season, uh, killing 80 to a hundred ducks a year. Yep. Uh, and, I, and that's all I ate. I think that is, I think the duck is one of the ultimate gateways. Oh yeah. I think I, yeah. and I've talked about this before. I think I talked about it the first time we had you on Chad with Brian, um, I grew up in a hunting family, same thing. Like I said, cabins and deer hunting and all that stuff. Um, I kind of fell out of it for a little while because I was playing in bands and doing all this other stuff. And a buddy of mine talked me into duck hunting one time. And once I did that, I was instantly just right back in and yeah. full on. And then the the best part about it for me was trying to figure out how to cook a duck that it's edible. So that said, uh, where ducks might have been the gateway, Emeril Lagasse was the pusher. Because uh, when I got out of the Navy, uh, Emeril was big on TV. Uh, he was on all the shows, and uh, I started watching. And I got into it a bit, and I went and I bought one of Emeril's books, oh. uh, Louisiana Real and Rustic. Uh, and one of the first things I noticed about the book was the amount of wild game in there. Uh Turtles, catfish, venison, rabbits, uh, ducks, geese, Stuff all sorts of fish. Everything that I had already. Yep. Uh, there must have been 10 or 12 good duck recipes in there. So uh, this was 20 years ago, uh, and uh, one of the recipes was duck pastrami. Oh. Uh, so uh, I thought I'd try it. It's just a basic brine, and at that point in time, I didn't have a smoker or a grill, so uh, there were oven instructions for how to cook it, uh, and started making pastrami out of the ducks, and then slicing it thin, a little onion marmalade, and a nice Kaiser roll, and you had the best sandwich on earth. Yep. Uh, and everybody started eating it, and I started cooking more, and next thing you know, I'm cooking a lot because uh, I had endless amounts of duck uh, at the time uh, and duck was it you know yep. I, I shot ducks I shot geese uh, I worked at St. Mary's Hospital in Rochester and Rochester was a big uh, you know goose hunting center yep. uh, and one of the respiratory therapists at the hospital was a guide uh, and every now and again he'd be like hey we got an open spot do you want to come out and set decoys and you know, we'll shoot geese. So yep. I'd go after work and we'd shoot geese and then you'd end up with a bunch of geese in the freezer. And, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a good problem to have. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, so then it was, well, what's next? You know, cause I've got ducks and geese. I need to call the Obergs again and see if I can get up there and go deer hunting. Yep. 
And at that point in time, you could shoot five deer. Uh, so five I would go deer. up there and I'd shoot five deer. And I'd have venison in the freezer and ducks and geese galore. And I started cooking more and more and more and more and everything came. And, you know, I, I kind of got known for saying the same thing over again. Uh, everybody was like, well, is that any good? And I'm like, yeah, you just have to cook it right. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it sort of sprung from there. Yeah. Uh, and then it kind of became a challenge. Yeah. You know, uh, Rick Edwards, we get a raccoon under his deck and we like, you want this raccoon? Yeah, why not? So we'll try it. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah. uh, do you want this possum? Sure, why not? We'll try yeah. it. You have to cook it right was a perfect line because that is – that is the key. I have oh, the yeah. I have the argument at least once a month with somebody on, you know, well that's not any good, or why would you eat that over this? And it's like, well, if you cook it right, it's yeah, extremely good. So going back to the first part of the story, uh, where my grandmother showed me a lot of things, yeah. uh, both grandmothers really. Uh, one thing they didn't show me was how to cook it. Yeah. Um, all the deer we shot is a kid, uh, were turned into summer sausage. Uh, we never had ground venison. We never had steaks. We never had anything. Yeah. Uh, everything my grandfather had turned into uh Thuringer or summer sausage. Yeah. And that was the only way I ever knew venison was prepared. Um, when I finally got around to saying, Hey dad, uh, we need to have some ground. I'd like to try something else. Uh, we got it and it was terrible. Yeah. Um, Looking back on it, I know why it was terrible. Uh, we would go to Montana and we'd shoot a mule deer. And Dad would throw it on a trailer and drive it from Montana back to Minnesota. Uh, and I, I, it's burned into my brain right now because I remember seeing this candy-coated uh, salt-and-ice deer yep. uh, on a trailer. They get nice and grimed up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then he'd leave it in the garage and let it thaw. Uh, and then he'd take it to a butcher and have it done. Yeah. And uh, the first few times we had ground venison, uh, whatever mom made, spaghetti, chili, whatever, it had to be thrown away. It was so bad. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just sort of assumed that that's how venison's supposed to taste. Yeah. That's we had that growing up with elk. They'd yeah. come home with a snowmobile, <clears throat> flatbed snowmobile trailer with five or six elk on it, road grime. Yeah. It's just, but they were, Ugh. they had the foresight to when it gets home trim it before it thaws trim it oh no get it off <laughs> no 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 you gotta let that bad dog thaw out <laughs> marinate in the road yeah. salt well yeah i was gonna say isn't that a natural curing agent <laughs> you got jerky yeah so i mean it was awful uh and i i remember shooting deer at the obergs and having dad turn into steaks and you know then i was 15 16 years old and uh like everyone else, I was hungry all the damn time. Yep. And I'd come home, and I remember getting my butt chewed because I came home one day, and I was hungry. Uh, so I went to the freezer, and I thought out of some steaks, and they were the good steaks from the cow mom had. <laughs> <laughs> and she'd come home, and there I am with a T-bone as an afternoon snack. And she was like, no, T-bones are not an afternoon snack. Uh, so then she told me, you can eat all that stuff over there. And I didn't know anything about cooking. Yeah. Um, at that point in time, uh, it had been brought into my brain, uh, that it's wild. So it's bad. Yeah. Uh, so we have to cook it extra because you got to kill all the bad stuff in it. Uh, so I mean, the only way I knew how to do anything was to roll it in Lowry season salt and grill it until it was a hockey yep. puck. Uh, and you know, when I was 15, 16, 17, that's what I did. Yeah. Well, and that's, and it's funny to me is I, I kind of grew up with the same sentiment of, I had two opposing sides. I had my dad who grew up up North, he was a farmer. And then my mom who grew up in the city and wild game was one of those things that it was wild. It was mm -hmm. scary. You have to cook everything out of it. Yeah. When it's the opposite is true. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You should be able to no. essentially take something rare and eat it and be fine. Yes. And, um, you know, through obviously exposure and all that, you kind of figure that out on your own. And yeah. once you figure that out, it's like, oh, wow. Well, this is, this is different. This is yeah. the right way of doing things. I think it was 2001. Uh, I had read a recipe for a, 
garlic, onion, and sage stuffed goose. Uh, and it recommended uh, cooking it until a meat thermometer uh, in the breast was 140. So I did that. And when it came out and it was red in the middle, I was scared to death. <laughs> I was certain I was going to end up with food poisoning, uh, but I took a bite anyway. Yeah. And it was the most delicious meat I'd ever had. It was it was well flavored. It was delicious. Yeah. It was moist. It was tender. It tasted better than anything I'd ever had. Yeah. And it was at that moment I was like, well, wait a minute. I didn't cook it until it was 165 degrees. It came out tender and delicious. What did I do wrong? Yeah. And I'd done nothing wrong. I'd done everything right. Yeah, I just didn't know it. <laughs> well, and then you think about that, like that situation, and uh, being nervous and scared and like, yeah. and even now when I feed people that come over to my house, same kind of deal. They're yeah. nervous and scared. But then I have my kids that I will feed them a rare venison steak where yeah. they have red juice dripping off their chin as they're eating a piece of steak. What's life going to be like for them going forward? Cause they know better yeah. than we did. So when they grow up, I feel like we're doing a good job now or whoever it is that started it, the marketing teams mm -hmm. or whatever, that started pushing that, are doing such a good job now that I feel like going forward, wild game is going to be more of a treasured thing to people when it comes to the table than it was for like us. Like it was well, one of those things we had to, it was special because it was wild game. Yeah. But that was the only thing that was special about it. Right. It wasn't special because of the flavor. Yeah, the right. flavor. Whereas like, no yeah, way. like now I just had the conversation yesterday with somebody and they, they said, it came up wild game came up and and it came up in a way that like it's not that good and i said honestly i would take a, a november duck breast over a ribeye steak any day of the week yeah yeah cooked mm -hmm. correctly any day yeah and they said there's no effing way i would yeah. do that i said well you haven't had it right yet yeah early <laughs> october wood duck Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's, there's nothing. Yeah, that, that tops and yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think, I think going forward, as time goes on, I think generation after generation, it's going to get better and better. In a way, like yeah, the the meat can't get any better, but I think the outlook of it can well, get better. I, I don't know about that. Oh, uh, I think uh, for your kids, my kids, yeah, uh, yes. Uh, but there are a lot of other kids out there that don't have parents that will ever expose their kids yeah, to it. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, I would love it if more kids could. And if I have anything to do with it, you know, people come to my house and my kids are now getting old enough where they have friends to the house. Yeah. And these friends come over and they don't know what anything is. Yeah. They've never even heard of it. So when I throw a piece of venison on the table and give it to them, they're like, what is this? And... I think there's some truth to the fact that well, the first time you eat it, it tastes different. Yeah. Uh, but I've eaten so much of it, I don't notice it. You've oh. probably eaten enough of it. You don't notice it. Yeah. Uh, people who have never eaten it, it's like when they eat lamb, you know, that word gamey comes up. It's not yeah. gamey. It's just different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it's got flavor. Uh, you don't know how else to describe it. Now, there. <laughs> it actually it's has true, flavor, but it's funny. But, yeah. but I mean, there's, there's. You did you taste something besides salt and pepper? Yeah, you've <laughs> had you've had pieces of meat uh, that I'm sure tasted odd to you. Yeah, you know, sometimes you know venison fat in particular goes bad so fast and taints the meat around it that it does get that funkiness to it and it tastes off. Yeah, but. We've eaten so much venison over time that when we get that piece, it's stomached. Yep. You know, you have no problem with it. You just chew through it and you're done. Yep. The next piece tastes delicious and great. Yeah, hey, you know something good is coming after yeah. that. Uh, where that one piece is enough to make a rookie go, oh, it's all bad. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's not all bad. I mean, there's just that one piece that maybe you didn't trim yep. enough or, you know, whatever. And that's a good point, too, with the trimming thing, I think. Um, and it's been beaten pretty hard lately, I feel like. But I think field care, when an animal is down, what you do with it next is oh, yeah. the, one yeah. of the most crucial parts. Because yeah. if you taint any of that 
and then try to cook it. No matter what you try to do, it it's going to have a funk. Well, and not just that. I wrote an article for Outdoor Life a while back about ten mistakes hunters make with wild game. Yeah. And the first one was not practicing enough at the range. Yeah. You know. Oh yeah. The meat tastes a certain way. And yeah. People argue with me if they want, but if you shoot a deer too far back. And that deer runs for six, eight hours. You have to leave it overnight, and you got to go back the next morning to find it. That deer tastes different uh, than the one that you put one through the heart, and it died right there. A well-placed arrow compared to a well-placed rifle. A well-placed arrow, a well-placed archery-killed animal is much better tasting because you're killing it by hemorrhage. All that's coming out of them. The blood comes out. You're bleeding them. Essentially. Yep. And that animal is so much better than a rifle killed animal. And that's not to, any nothing against rifle killed. I killed the only deer I killed last year was with a rifle. Yeah. But it's there is a difference by far. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's yeah, that's a good point. You start there and then from there there's a lot of things you can do to make that animal taste way better. Right. Yeah. And some of it comes down to aging. Yep. You know, and this aging debate will rage on forever and ever because uh, we've all got that one idiot friend uh, who says, oh, I hang my deer in the garage for at least 10 days until a good layer of mold grows on it. Yeah. And then I cut that off. Okay, that's dumb. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know why you would waste meat, you know. Uh, I don't disagree that aging creates flavor. Yeah. I am, however, selfish, and I don't want to give up meat. Yep. Uh, and when you let a piece of meat hang and dry, you have to cut meat off. Yep. Uh, there are other ways. I've been experimenting lately with uh, wet aging. Okay. So the deer we got this year, uh, I took two big roasts and I vacuum sealed them. And then I put them in the refrigerator and just left them there for a month. Not exposed to air, only their own juices aging for a month. They're not drying out. They're not doing anything. That meat tasted different than the meat that I put in the freezer. Yeah. It was better. I can see It was that. delicious. Yeah. And mm-hmm. when you cut into that big roast and you made your steaks out of it, it was that beautiful purple color you're looking for. Yeah. So I, I really like the wet aging. I'm not a big fan of the dry aging. Well, there's that fear there with the wet aging of putting something in the fridge for a month. Because when you... Yeah. And, and the fear comes from when somebody goes to the grocery store and they pick up a steak. Yeah. They put it in the fridge after a week. The thing's gone. Yeah. It's terrible. And I, I get where you're coming from because I've done it with elk and stuff like that. Like I've taken an elk sirloin roast, thrown it in the fridge, let it thaw out. Every day I come in there and I just slice a steak off for breakfast. Mm-hmm. That damn thing will last two weeks and it's still perfectly fine at the end of two weeks. It yeah. has no scent to it, no funkiness to it at all. And I think part of that is the fact that it's it's fresh, hasn't been traveling anywhere, hasn't been doing anything. It's been sitting in a clean, controlled environment for that long. It also wasn't pumped full of antibiotics it, beforehand. Exactly. And it's, uh, it it's wasn't introduced pure, to carbon dioxide yeah. to make it red. Yeah. It didn't. <laughs> I mean, yeah. all the little tricks that we don't know about yeah. that they're doing to that meat that you get at Cub Foods. Yeah. Uh, not that it's bad. I mean, every yeah. now and again, I like a ribeye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I won't deny that either. I am yeah. 100% all for a beefsteak every once in a while. Yeah. But, I mean... If I could go buy a venison loin in the grocery store, like an actual yeah. wild venison loin, I probably would buy that every once yeah. in a while too. Because why wouldn't you? It's good. I prefer it. Yep. And and I think I think that yeah, that's something that it's a conversation that's getting more and more common, and people are talking about more and more the fact that wild game isn't this terrible thing. Yeah. At least we see it. But maybe in the outside, like people that aren't involved in hunting and fishing in a way that we are or anything like that, maybe they don't see it that way. But I think from what I've seen, it's become more common, Yeah, which I think is a great thing. Um, It is becoming more mainstream. We're seeing, you know, restaurants have it on the menu. People are trying it. Uh, I think it's Buffalo. Mm -hmm. Uh, Buffalo kind of did it. Yeah. You know, we've got this organic movement. We've got all these people saying we got to get away from factory farming. We got to do sustainable. Uh, And we're seeing more and more of it. And if at all possible, uh, bringing new hunters out for food is a great way of getting people involved. Yeah. It is. There is a downside 
to the fact that it's becoming mainstream though. I don't know if you ever had this, but in my day I did where people would give me their ducks and give me their goose meat and mm-hmm. give me their venison meat because they didn't want it. So there is a downside because now they're starting to realize that they were idiots and they're starting to keep that meat. Yeah. <laughs> some of them are. Yeah. So that, selfishly, <laughs> selfishly, there's a downside. Uh, I, I will say some of them are. Yeah. Uh, this year, however, uh, my freezer is full <laughs> and I didn't know that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, like, so... I think it was two years ago. I went to uh, a local restaurant called Corner Table. Yeah, um, they had. Uh, I managed Palmer. to great, great restaurant. Yep, they had uh, three different types of duck and one goose. I ordered every single one of them because I wanted to see what what they could bring to the table. Right. Um, it, it it was really unique because for me it was. Well, you just you take Montreal steak seasoning, put it on the grill, and that's it. But it's like, holy smokes! Like this is completely different. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, like, and even going back to the aging process, I actually have a goose that's still hanging in my garage that I'm aging, mm-hmm. just to see if it's any good. Because I watched a, an episode. Uh, I, f- I think it was on Ugly Delicious. Yeah. About um, a guy, I, f- I forgot what prominent chef it was, but he had been aging beef for four years or something. Yeah. Just ridiculous. Yeah. And it had the mold on it, but they're still eating it. Yeah. yeah. It tastes they're, like blue cheese. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And they're cutting right off of it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah. what are you doing? <laughs> so it's like, if. So when I go up to when I go up to the goose, I'm like, man, I can I can smell the thing. Mm-hmm. But the thing about with with fowl is their meat is separate from uh, the organs and stuff right. that could yeah. potentially foul it up. Unless completely. you've extremely poorly gut shot yes. your duck or goose, yes. uh, none of the entrails or anything are near the meat. Right. Yeah. So I'm in the process. Uh, we'll see how I've this all goes, but I've, I've done it with mallards. I did, I started experimenting with mallards this year. Um, and some ringnecks too, where I've, I've aged them for a month and the meat looks a little bit, actually, it looks a little bit better than the day that it was yeah. where you normally yeah. would breast it out. And it's, it looks great. It tastes amazing. Yeah. It tastes even better. There's some very interesting things that happen in this world. Uh, And one of them is how we've been convinced of all the things that are going to kill us. Yeah. Um, I don't oppose aging. And if I came across anti-aging, I'm sorry. But part of my problem with aging is that nobody's got the correct facility for it. Yes. Hanging a deer in your garage where you park your car is a bad idea. Yeah. So like yeah. my goose is probably a bad idea. <laughs> it's probably a bad idea. That's where my pheasants are too. I'm, I'm still like, going to try it out though. But that's just my opinion. Yeah. Okay. It, it's probably not really that bad for you, but I just, I see it as, you know, there's exhaust. Yeah. I think there's, uh, I think there's something to that, but I think at the same time, I think that's like the, the restaurant market version of aging yeah. is a clean piece of meat put on a rack, yeah. sitting out open. Temperature controlled, humidity yeah. controlled. Yeah. But no protection at all. No. Whereas, like, But you don't need protection or, if you have temperature and humidity no, control. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, no, I yeah. get what you're saying. But I'm saying, like, whereas, like, a goose or somebody that hangs a deer, say, well, a deer is a bad example, but, like, I've hung quarters in game bags yeah and kept them up for weeks but there's some kind of protection there yeah. obviously that's not keeping carbon dioxide out but maybe your goose is <laughs> we'll find out <laughs> but but uh but i think there's a little bit of protection there and i'm not defending it at all because i get what you're saying too but then there's also that old english way of doing things of hanging things till the head comes off right yeah and yeah and <sighs> I don't know. I think there's there's a way of being insulated to a point where it's okay, mm-hmm. and there's a way of being insulated to a point where it's not like you're you're over insulated. Well, and we like, are we are incredibly overprotective of our things. Yeah. If we look throughout the rest of the world, 
and you think about the things that people do in other yeah. parts of the world. Uh, we, we travel no further than Iceland uh, to see that they, they catch a shark that the nitrogen in its body is so intense that if you eat that shark fresh, it'll poison you. <laughs> but if you take that shark and you bury it and you leave it for six months I've and it rots and ferments, <laughs> all of a sudden it's edible. <laughs> Uh, and, and who yeah. figured that out? That guy. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, when you look at the rest of the world, there are things that are done everywhere else yeah. that we don't do here because we've gotten so overprotective yeah. of our food. You know, we're not going to allow ourselves to have, you know, raw milk cheeses. We're yeah. not going to allow ourselves to eat some of the finer things in the world because once upon a time, somebody got sick. You can go as far, yeah. you can go as close as Mexico. Yeah. Where they take a deer they killed, buried in the ground, cover it in coals, throw yeah. some dirt over the top, and let it sit overnight and come mm -hmm. back and they have a cooked deer the right. next day. And that's a very, very common thing. Yes. But you're not going to see that happen in Chippewa National Forest. Well, I, I'm sure people do it. No, we ought to. Oh, yeah, we yeah, do. Yeah, we, we should. <laughs> we should. I got a venison quarter in the freezer. I've got one as well. There you go. We'll go start a fire and dig a hole. We'll have Who's to wait until the spring. <laughs> <laughs> there's a swamp that's thawed. Somewhere. Yeah, I'm sure there is. <laughs> no, but I think there's a lot to that. I think there's. I think that's a really good topic to get into a little bit. This is completely sidetracked off what we talked about originally, but we kind of had an idea that that might happen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the insulation of, that people have put on, because – it kind of started with your comment on, you know, with wild game, it's wild. So yeah. <laughs> cook the crap out of it. There's yeah. nothing bad about it once you cook it too much. So nowadays we're getting to a point where, like I said, my kids are eating. They're eating. I'm feeding my kids goose heart yeah. and I'm feeding them venison heart. And my wife is kind of looking at me funny like, what are you doing? It's like, it, it's meat. It's, yeah. It's simply meat. That's my wife what it hates me. Yeah, uh, when I do that, you know. <laughs> Glad when, you finished with that. Oh yeah. No, 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 no. When, so what was it? Uh, a month ago, I had a deer heart. Yeah. Uh, in November, I got to meet Sean Brock. Oh nice. Uh, oh cool. I got to talk to him. Uh, whenever I meet people like that, I ask one question: If you had a deer heart, how would you cook it? Uh, he he recommends, uh, you know, olive oil, fresh herbs, salt, and pepper. Oh, uh, in, in different method. Oh. Uh, he says, you know, once you trim your heart and get it down, salt it. Let it sit for 30 minutes to absorb the salt. Once it's absorbed the salt, take your olive oil uh, and your fresh herbs, chop them, a little salt, a little more pepper, uh, and then grill them hot, fast, minute each side, yep. slice it thin, serve it with a butter bean puree. Uh, it's exactly what I did. Uh, I added vinegar. Uh, I had some pine cone vinegar uh, that I wanted to use, so I added that to the marinade. Uh, grilled real hot, sliced thin, butter bean puree, and then I topped it with a rampant stinging nettle chimichurri. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you didn't go all out at all. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, when I feed that to my wife, and she knows it's a heart, she wants to not like it. Yep. She wants to tell me, this is bad. I don't want to eat this. It's a heart. It grosses her out. The whole idea upsets her. She eats it and she's like, Jesus Christ, I hate you. <laughs> uh, because there, that there's was no different than most yeah, uh, There's no arguing yeah, that right. it's delicious. Uh, it's tender. It's juicy. It pairs with everything on the plate. It's delicious. Yeah. yeah. And I do that to people all the time. A uh, neighbor lady hates ducks. She ate it once. It was the worst thing she ever had. Yep. I feed her duck. She hates me because now she wants to eat duck. <laughs> you got a lot of enemies. I do. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I fed. Love to hate you, Jay. <laughs> invited uh, some folks over for a uh, little St. Patty's get together we were going to have. Uh, and I told them I was going to cook some antelope. And the lady was telling me. I had antelope. It is the worst meat on earth. I'm like, all right, fine. Uh, you don't have to eat it. Uh, I corned an antelope roast. Uh, made oh, corned antelope. That was good. Yeah. She ate it, and she's just like, how? I had antelope. It just was awful. Oh. And this is tender, delicious, juicy, 
Best thing she ever had. Antelope is one that floors me. Yeah. I get that all the time. Antelope is terrible. I taste sagey. It tastes this. It tastes that. It tastes gamey. No. No. If you've had antelope that's done right, it is phenomenal. So antelope, typically when you hunt them, it's warm. Yep. Uh, If you are not on the ball, uh, if you are not breaking that animal down and throwing it on ice quickly, uh, it will sour. Yeah. You cannot shoot an antelope and gut it like you would a white-tailed deer and then throw it in the back of your pickup and carry it around all day. Yep. Uh, it will sour and go bad. Yeah. Uh, if it is not shot and in a cooler reasonably in a half hour, uh, yeah, you're probably going to taste a little off. My recommendation is do what I did last year. Shoot them the day before rifle elk opens. <laughs> so the last essential day. That was October 25th, I believe it was last year that I shot them. It was still cold. Yeah. But, yeah, we each, I shot it. It went down. I ran up to it, got it cleaned out, got it quartered out threw it in the back of the truck, got it hung mm-hmm. and in a nice cool spot up on a mountain right outside our elk camp where it's nice and cold. And yeah, it's phenomenal. And I've been eating antelope for 20 years now. Yeah. And I've never had an antelope that I thought, oh my God, this is terrible. Yeah. Like no, I- the first antelope I shot, uh, we were just outside of Gillette, uh, out in Wyoming. Uh, we were hunting on a ranch. Uh, it had just snowed eight inches. Oh. Uh, so we shot eight antelope and I was like, everybody was panicked. They were like, we got to get these things cut up into a cooler. I'm like, there's eight inches of snow out here. Yeah. What are you talking about? You're fine. Uh, yeah. Uh, you just gut it and pack the cavity full of snow and you're golden. Uh, so we did that. And that, I mean, uh, it was interesting because when we shot those, uh, I had had it in my mind that there were certain parts of the antelope I wanted to eat yeah. immediately. The one I shot, uh, the very first thing I did was pull the liver out, slice it thin, and eat it raw. Yeah. Uh, and if you've never done that, I would highly recommend it. Uh, Should have done that. Last sweet, year. delicious, wonderful. Uh, the most awkward texture you'll ever come. Across. I can imagine. Yeah, that's going to uh, be hard to get past. So sweet, delicious, but awkward texture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So no it was kidding. sweet and delicious with a texture that you would imagine crunchy sauerkraut to have. (laughs) (laughs) Like snapping liver tendons. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) It was just, it was an awkward texture. So I get that. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, we sliced the heart up. We stewed it. uh, We did the... Yeah, liver in the stew as well. Uh, it was delicious. Because yeah, uh, on an antelope, I feel like that kind of stuff, if you pull it out, you you have to do something with it that day because there's not much to it. Unless you have the means to... You know, the antelope livers, because uh, I ended up... we As a group, we shot eight that year. So I had eight hearts and eight livers to work with. I took all those livers home. Oh. Uh, and I tried them in different ways. Uh, none of them were bad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Made some pâtés. Uh, I did dry cure an antelope liver. Uh, packed it in salt. Let it sit for like a week, and then took it out of salt, rinsed it, dried it, and then hung it and let it sit until it was as hard as a hockey puck. Yeah. Uh, that liver, uh, if you took like your microplane then and just grated that liver, hmm. it was otherworldly. Yeah. Uh, roasted beets and duck fat and then grated liver over it and just ate those sweet beets with the duck fat and this really salty liver on top of it. God, that was good. I was like the trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was it was outstanding. That's interesting because, yeah, there's certain animals out there, um, especially like obviously birds and stuff, but when you get into the big game world, there's certain animals that there's not much to them. Yeah. And you have to either keep them whole Mm-hmm. pack the cavities with snow or ice um or like with an antelope it's like you know if i'm gonna throw it in a game bag and hang it on a tree i'm not gonna keep the back straps hanging up on a tree or the tenderloins i'm gonna cook them mm-hmm. right away um and there's that side that you you always hear of letting it go through rigor mortis first do you see much benefit to that or is it more so with rigor mortis uh i have a general rule when i shoot an animal if I can have it wrapped and packaged in about six hours in the freezer, yeah. you're good to go. Okay. After six hours, you're going to get into let the rigor mortis. Through. You want to let it sit for about 24. 
Okay. That's a, so that's good to know. If if I can get it done immediately, yep. which sometimes you don't have a choice. Yep. You know, uh, I've shot deer uh, five minutes from my house. Yep. Uh, I'm at home. It's still warm. I might as well. Yep. Uh, that's, throw it down, put it in the freezer. You're good to go. That's a really good point. And it's something I've never heard before. Once um, you get into the rigor thing, that six to 12 hour range, you got to let it come out. Yeah. Let it sit for 24 hours and then get to it. Okay. Uh, if it's whole, you want it to be cold. If it's not whole, quarter it, put it in a cooler. Yeah. Let it sit for a little while. It will come out, and then you can cut it up. Yeah. So you, uh, I guess based off of that, gut shot deer, obviously that's sitting overnight. No. No, I mean, it's, it's sitting overnight probably in the field because you're not going to be able to get to it. You're gonna find you're gonna find a, a live deer. <laughs> Shoot so, toast down. I guess. <laughs> uh, that has happened to me once. Yeah. Uh, and it was a, a really bad situation because yeah. I shot it, it was too far back, it was a bow shot. Uh, I I tracked it and I found it. And then it jumped and it ran. Yep. And I tracked it and I found it and it jumped and it ran. And at that point in time, I was committed, and I was like, I'm not letting this deer sit out here overnight. I'm finding this deer, and if I have to track it and jump it and track it and jump it, eventually that stress will cause it to die. Yep. It's probably going to affect the meat, but I'm not going to let it sour, you know. So I tracked it and jumped it and tracked it and jumped it, and then eventually I tracked it, and it was sitting there, and it wouldn't jump. Yep. So I just kept getting closer and closer and closer until I was probably eight feet away from it. Yep. And then I was able to put another arrow in it. And it was, you know, midnight, pitch yeah. black outside, but I was eight feet away with a headlamp. And <laughs> yeah. I've had a lot of those situations, and I will say that I'm a huge proponent of that. Um, the whole leave it in the field. Yeah. And find it in the morning thing just doesn't pan out, especially depending on the areas. You know, like right here at the land that my parents had, we I did that one time. I came back to a doe with basically neck meat and head left. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. I, I got to it once. It. Uh, yeah. I was up at the Obergs. We shot a deer. Uh, there was nothing we could do. Yeah. And you know what it's like, November time yeah. frame. It's light and then it's not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when it's that dark outside, you're not tracking anything. Yep. You can try, especially in a swamp, you know, tall reeds, the whole nine yards. Yeah. Uh, we let it sit. We came back the next morning and there was nothing left. Yeah. It's a terrible uh, deal. And yeah. I think I think it's one of those deals that people have to realize, like, there is – I hate having that conversation with people when I'm with them. Yep. And they always want to back out and come back to it and i'm always the one that says that's no. what we see though yeah that that there, is there is see. not a show on earth that is gonna say well let's go push him and jump him one <laughs> yeah one, well, one that's that why does. I, that's why i bring it up because yeah. I, I i'm curious what i guess your perspective on it because most of the rest of the the population would say we'll let it sit yeah yeah i think it's a terrible idea to ever leave an animal overnight and i think um if there's an opportunity for it to keep chasing after that animal and keep jumping it over yeah. and over until it's dead or until you can get another shot at it because it just, like you said, meat spoils yep. or predators or, you Especially know. here in Minnesota, the yep. coyotes are on these things so fast. Yep. Um, I don't know. Uh, I'd be willing to listen to the argument the other side, mm-hmm. but if you can find it and push it, and stay with it. What else do you have to do? Yep. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think it, it's going to be a long night regardless. Yeah. Whether you find it right away or if you're chasing it around, it's going to be a long night regardless. And you owe it to that animal. I think in so. A way, to, uh, you know? If you've got to stay up all night and sleep a little bit tomorrow after you're yeah. done with the animal. And the alternative, of course, is uh, we leave it there. We come back tomorrow morning and we find half of it eaten by coyotes. Yep. Uh, and then what, mm. you know, do you punch your tag or, 
What do you do? Uh, yeah, and there's there's you know, that part uh, of it. From a legal standpoint, you don't have to. Yeah. Uh, should you? Probably. Yeah. You know, but that's a hard argument to get somebody to... Yeah. It's hard to pin somebody down on that because the circumstances are different for everybody. Right. And then on top of that, you have the idea of, you know... <laughs> The idea of leaving it overnight so it's a peaceful whatever yeah. to the animal. It's not peaceful. They're no. in pain. They're suffering. Chasing it down, maybe you can shorten that pain. Yeah. Um, having them eaten while they're bawling out, while coyotes are chewing on their, literally their butts yeah. and working their way in, um, that can't be pleasant. I can't imagine it would be. I would, would take be. another bullet yeah. or an arrow over that. Yeah. Any day. Yeah. So I think there's something to be said there. And I, I, yeah, I just, I've never been a big proponent of the no. walk away, leave it overnight thing. No. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah. I would take I guess that's, it. that's just the way that I was taught. It's a, that's how a lot of people are taught. Yeah. Yeah. It is what most that's of us are taught. Just, it's what yeah, most of us see. Um, and everybody will do what they want. Yeah. Yep. I just if if I've got a good trail and I can follow it, I'm going to follow yeah. it. Yeah, and I think that's the right way to do it. Um, yeah. We are kind of getting a little short on time. We we did wax poetic. We yeah. did go a little <laughs> long, but I do want to kind of get into like one last little bit, and we can kind of be short and do a flyover on it. Um, last year, I did a hike to hunt with Jamie. And his son was along, and I was extremely impressed at there was no whining. There was no complaining. He was just happy and interested and intrigued by everything going on around him, and he seemed to be fully involved in it. And so I just kind of want to do a quick, like, run-through, and it doesn't have to be super detailed, but um, kind of what worked for you and what didn't work for you in the sense of mentoring your kids into the outdoors and i'm sure it was kind of a natural thing but looking over it from this point so i think uh the biggest thing uh is that it's not done yeah uh charlie's eight ellie's ten mm -hmm. um one of the things that i learned when i was growing up um there is nothing more miserable uh than being placed on a rock pile in the middle of a beet field in the middle of november <laughs> And left there all day. Uh, it's cold. It's miserable. Yep. Nobody wants that. Yeah. Uh, when I look back on my life, it's really actually quite amazing uh, that I enjoy the outdoors. <laughs> 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 you know, uh, my dad wasn't always right in the way he did things. Uh, it wasn't always the right way to do things. Yeah. Um, when they were little, uh, when Eleanor was four, five years old, maybe. I would take her out looking for mushrooms. Yeah. Um, a lot of the time, I would take her out looking for mushrooms the day after I went looking for mushrooms because I already knew where there were mushrooms. Yeah, high success rate. And then I could take her to that spot and she would see success. Yeah. Um, I also learned uh, early not to ever take her anywhere I couldn't carry her out of. Yep. Because with Eleanor, uh, it was, she had no problem walking in, but walking I sort of overestimated her endurance. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then she wouldn't want to walk out. Yep. So when it came time to taking both Charlie and Ellie together, I would take them in, out into the woods. We'd go to a place, we'd pick nettles, we'd, you know, dig ramps, whatever. Um, there were a lot of times that I made a one mile or more walk carrying two 40 pound kids, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, one on the front, one on the back. Yep. Uh, and you know, that's great. I needed the training, uh, <laughs> but no complaints from you, right? No, it's fine. I, I got them into the situation. I got to get them up. I get that. Uh, last year we took the kids to Colorado and there was some, we took the kids on some big hikes Yeah, and I knew going into it that I'd be carrying at least one. Yeah. There was times where I was carrying two and we were carrying them two to three miles out with elevation and everything else. And it, it was a lot of work, but at the same time, I was happy to do it. Right. Yeah. Cause you got them out there. You got them to see what they needed to see. You got them to see the end of the trail, the way back. Who cares? Yeah, no, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. Um, just having them out there is everything in the world to me. Yeah. Um, 
that said, uh, there are expeditions that I plan uh, that I know aren't going to last. Yep. So uh, I've always told my wife, um, when I go hunting with other people, uh, I'm not going to get anything. <laughs> Uh, if I wanted to go get something, I'd go by myself. Yeah. Uh, so when I take the kids out, if I take them fishing, if I take them hunting, if I go just for foraging or whatever, um, early on it was as soon as they said they were cold, as soon as they said they were bored, as soon as they said they were tired, I took them out. Yeah. And we went home and we stopped somewhere. I didn't care. We went to holiday. Yeah. And we got a, you know, Ellie loves her chocolate chip cliff bars and uh charlie you know, he'll just eat anything you give him uh, <laughs> so i mean I, it didn't matter uh, yeah that's what we did you yeah. know as soon as they were done they were done and you yeah. didn't argue as they got a little older though i had to push that yeah so when they got a little older it was dad i'm cold okay that's fine you can be cold yeah uh we'll wait 15 more minutes and then we'll go yeah uh, and then it was, I'm sorry, you're cold, but let's, uh, let's, you know, run a little bit. Yep. Let's, let's move around a little bit more. Let's give it a half hour. Uh, and then we'll go, um, last year. Uh, so now they're God, what were they? 10 and seven at the time. Um, I got four days off. It was just sort of a random occurrence. Didn't know what else to do with ourselves. So I was like, Hey, let's just go up to Grand Marais. You got yeah. nothing else to do. Uh, hotel up there is almost giving away nights. Yeah. They need people to come up. Let's go. So we went. Um, what do you do in Grand Marais in November? Yeah. I, you know? Yeah. So I was like, well, Eagle Mountain's right there. Let's yeah. go. Let's go to the highest point in Minnesota. Yeah. yeah. So we took off. Uh, and it's like a three-mile hike in, three-mile hike out. Yep. Uh, snow and wet, cold, uh, perfect. Uh, so we took off, uh, <laughs> perfect <laughs> with that. I, as much as I'd like to push my kids, yeah. I also knew that we weren't just doing a quick walk. Yep. Uh, it was an in, it was an out. So I made it very clear to them as soon as they feel cold, as soon as they feel overwhelmed, they need to let me know yep. because the further we get in, the further we have to come out. So we decided we were going to go. We made it almost a mile and a half. And then Eleanor was like, dad, my hands are really cold. I was like, okay, let's go. And we turned right around and we started walking out. Uh, And it was another mile and a half out. And by the time we got back to the car, her hands were cold and we didn't need to be waiting any longer. Uh, But, she also knows that it's okay to be cold. Yeah. Uh, your hands are going to get cold. Uh, and we also need to know when to turn back. We need to know when to stop. We need to know all these things. Yeah. Um, but just getting those two out and doing things is so incredible. Yeah. Uh, and when you get to finally see something, you know, uh, we went up towards uh, Duncan Lake uh, and we were hiking and found moose tracks. Oh, nice. Uh, fresh snow, moose tracks. It was wonderful. Uh, yep. So we're following these moose tracks. And I'm thinking, God, wouldn't it be cool if we walked up and saw yep. a moose? Uh, what we saw was cooler. Uh, there were no moose. But where the moose tracks were merged in the wolf tracks. Holy crap. <laughs> and the wolf tracks are on top of the moose tracks. <laughs> So uh, it it was one of those situations where it was clear. Yeah. You know, uh, both of them are here. Yeah. And and that's a great thing for kids to see. Yes. Uh, And then I'm not crazy. Uh, There are wolf tracks on top of moose tracks. It snowed last night. Yeah. Which means this is pretty new. Yeah. Uh, We followed for a little bit, but I'm not going to get. Yeah. Into a situation where I've got to be, you know. Throwing your kids up in trees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, we started walking back. Yeah. Uh, and as we were walking back, uh, a red fox 
just stood there and stared at us. Yeah. Uh, so we didn't see a moose. We didn't see a wolf, but we saw a red fox. Yeah. Uh, and that was incredible. And both those kids just loved it. Yeah. Uh, and then we saw a deer and, you know, on the way out, we were driving down Gunflint, saw a coyote on the side of the road. And, you know, all those little instances like that are great. And, you know, there's a certain part of me, uh, that thinks about the way my dad did things and how I was sort of exposed to it. And I don't want to be too soft on my kids, Yep. but I don't want to make them so uncomfortable that they don't want to go. Yep. And that hike to hunt was a great thing because it was easy. Yep. But the mosquitoes were bad. Yeah. And mosquitoes will ruin almost as much as cold will. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Charlie didn't like the mosquitoes. He was having a hard time with them. Uh, one of the ladies that was there had some spray, so we put it on him. And after that, he was okay. But he didn't want to give up. Yeah. Just being there and seeing everybody else doing it and being included with that group of people. When he looked at you and Tom and all the other guys that were out there, he was like, these guys are really cool. Yeah. And he wanted to be cool, too. Uh, and we didn't go far, three, three and a half miles. Yeah, it was like three and a half miles, but still summertime with kids. I, I, I was, I was blown away because like when we were in Colorado, I brought it up a little bit, but when we were in Colorado, we were doing three and a half in Mm -hmm. three and a half out hikes and you're in Colorado. It's elevation. It's whatever, but still you're in Colorado. Like you would think kids would just be eating it up. Yeah. And, and they do for a while. But eventually it wears off. And there were days where we were half mile in and I'd start hearing about it. Yeah. And it, and my kids have been hiking since, like, my youngest I carried around in a backpack carrier. And my oldest would be, when he was three years old, we were doing six-mile hikes. Mm-hmm. And he had no issues. But as he's gotten older and seeing how the other side lives, <laughs> I yeah. should say, yeah. he's all of a sudden gotten softer and softer and, I, and so the reason i kind of brought that up is partially s- selfishly because i want to know you know mm-hmm. like what you have done but it sounds like you've kind of done the same things yeah. um i think i think what you said is right pull them out when you can pull them out yeah. make it successful my kid's first duck hunt he was two i brought four king-size candy bars yeah and it was like you're yeah. bored you're unhappy here have a candy bar. Mm-hmm. You're happy now. Yeah. No, little Debbie uh, oh, will goes, save your life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Snacks are king when yeah. it comes to kids. Yeah. And like I took mine out. I'm, so my oldest went out on his first November duck hunt this year. And he was cold. Like he was pretty dang cold. And, and it when he told me like, I'm cold, we need to like make a plan here. I said, okay, let's pack up. We'll get out of here. We got to the truck. I put him in the truck, started the truck, let it warm up. Um, I loaded up the boat, did everything while he was sitting in the truck. By the time I got back to the truck, he was still kind of like shaking, still kind of cold. And I was was like, you all right? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Did you have fun today? He's like, yeah, I had a lot of fun. Oh yeah. And he was just pumped on it, but he was miserable at oh, the yeah. same time and it's like yeah you know as, lo- as long as you walk away with that positive idea mm-hmm. of it i don't care how bad it was as long as you walk away with a positive idea and i think i think in a way to me i i'm excited for my kids to walk away from something that they were yeah. miserable while they were doing but in the aftermath saying yeah that was pretty cool well i mean it, and you you look at it as an adult too, is you have to suffer. Yeah. And when you no, suffer, that's when you really appreciate That's what they need to understand yeah. is that it's okay to be cold. Yep. Yeah. It's okay to be uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, I've, I'm sure you've heard it before. And, you know, I say it to my daughter all the time, but you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's okay. You yep. don't want to be so uncomfortable that you're miserable. Yep. But you got to be able to be uncomfortable because life isn't comfortable. Right. Uh, you know, spearing, ice fishing, these things are great ways to do that. Uh, but I have a friend, Brian Frana, uh, and another buddy, Sean Bergeth. And when your kids act a certain way, you're, you're I, I don't know how you feel about this, but sometimes I feel embarrassed. 
sometimes I feel like, oh my God, I got to do something about this. I got to control them. Uh, I don't want them to embarrass me. You got to let all that go. So Sean and Brian want to go spearing. And I'm like, I'm bringing the family with me. So we go. Ellie and Amanda come with my wife and it's all good. But, you know, Eleanor doesn't want to stay out there very long. She doesn't have the patience for it. Charlie, on the other hand, he's, he's digging it. Yeah. But he also doesn't want to sit still. Yeah. And forcing him to sit still is only going to make it miserable. Yep. So, Dad, can I go uh, see what Brian's doing? Please. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> go for and, a walk. <laughs> and as much as I don't want him to bother Brian, uh, I also have to just understand that's my own, uh, it's my own issue. Yep. You know, it's it's me feeling like yeah, God, Brian is, doesn't is, care. Is Brian going to judge me? Is Brian going to yeah, feel no. this way? Yeah. No, Brian's not. Yeah. I, I wouldn't hang out with people that would. Yeah. So why am I afraid? But it, it's it's my own insecurity that drives that. So Charlie wants to get up out of his chair, run over, and see how Brian's doing. He just unzips and walks in. Hey, Brian, what are you up to? Yeah. And Brian's like, well, I'm just waiting like you are. And, yeah. Okay, cool. And then he runs over to Sean's tent. <laughs> hey, Sean, what are you doing? <laughs> well, you know, we see some bass over here, but nothing else. Okay, I'm going to go see how dad's doing. And <laughs> letting him move around and go yeah. between them. Yeah. Well, he stay uh, warm that way, too. Well, he does. Yeah. Uh, but then he wants to sit down. And then, yeah. you know, the end of the day comes. And Sean and Brian are like, hey, we're going to go over to the restaurant and get a beer and hang out. And Charlie, can we go? Like, yeah, of course we can go. <laughs> yeah, why not? So then you sit down and Charlie gets his little fried wontons. Best day ever, Dad. Thanks. Yeah. And you're like, God, I didn't do anything, yeah. but you're welcome. And let them have fun. Let them enjoy it. Let them be themselves. Yeah, I think is key. And it's not all been success. You no. know, uh, Eleanor uh, doesn't like the sound of a gun. Oh yeah. Uh, I thought dove hunting would be a nice, easy way to introduce her to hunting. Early September, nice day. She made me leave the gun in the car. Uh, There were no doves that day. (laughs) But she sat in a field for four hours and just watched birds fly by. So what do I care? Yeah. You know? That's great. It's, you gotta, you gotta just let it be. Yeah. And when you let it be and enjoy it for what it is, you're spending time with your kids. Yep. If you wanted to go kill something, you should have gone by yourself. Yep. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Good point there. Yeah, no, I think uh yeah, I think there's a lot of good lot of good takeaways from that little bit for sure. Jamie, thank you for thank coming on. Thank you for on. having me, Jim. Uh, Chad, think, nice to meet you. Yeah. Thanks I, for having me at your house. I think we will definitely have to have you on again. Maybe we'll try for like a midday or a morning. <laughs> <laughs> I actually didn't mind this one bit. No, so. no it was a blast. Well, thank you, Jamie. We appreciate <laughs> yeah, it. And like me. I said, we will get you back on for sure. Thanks, guys. And as always, everybody, uh, feel free to share your stories with us here at Contact Outdoors. We want to hear them. And until next time. The Contact Outdoors crew would like to send out a sincere thank you to all of our listeners. The Backcountry Dreaming Podcast is brought to you by Contact Outdoors and directed by Brian Holberg. Original music and audio production by Dakota Rankin. Connect with us online. Links to our website, Instagram, and Facebook can be found in the show notes.